0: Welcome, everybody. We're back for another edition of The Lock-In. I'm here with Dara O'Karney as usual. Say hello, Dara.
1: Hello, Dara.
0: And we are joined this week by a very special guest, Dara's co-author and tea maker. Is that right? Barry Carter. Yeah. Hello. hello. Yes, I <laughs> uh,
1: see. <laughs> I just woke up.
2: Yeah, no, the, the running joke is that I make, make the tea, but, um, you know... No, that's about it really it. <laughs>
1: much nicer backdrop than ours uh we have our usual backdrops here actually i didn't bother to move the bicycle, the bicycle yeah it, there.
2: It, it looks pretty good i um have designed it in that way but if i put it that way you, see, you can see this wall that's just caved in over at the other oh, end. oh yeah that's nice yeah the, yeah the green
1: stuff is good yeah
2: fancy barry you live in a fancy place yeah no, no it's all right It's uh, we got in about two weeks before lockdown happened. So we we, we got pretty lucky, all things considered. I thought we'd be uh, sleeping on a box or something. So, you know,
0: could have been worse. worse. Barry, you are a man who has been in the poker industry for a long time. So I thought having you on the show was an opportunity to really maybe get into the weeds of some of the recent topics that have come Mm -hmm. up in the world of poker so first up really and and I can already almost hear Dara's soul slipping away as I bring up Mike Postle and the case (laughs) that we've done our best to avoid actually in the show and I don't think we did a follow-up piece on the main chip ratio for the reason that everybody else was covering it and it's kind of like okay well it's just covered like it's covered to death and it was over covered when it happened Mm. not that it's not serious But we just felt like, well, actually, do you know what? We can focus on other stuff. But to undermine that point, Mm -hmm. I do want to touch on it now with you because you would be somebody who, you know, may have had an opportunity to to, to read into what happened. Obviously, the the sort of legal stuff all happened. Uh, The judge made his ruling. I know it's possibly going to be kind of run again, but I'm not really sure if if it will or if it's worth doing from the point of view of the plaintiffs. I know Mac, Verstandic has said that he does want to continue with the case. So, what's your overall impression before maybe we go into a few details?
2: Turns out he's the best player in the world and we should. <laughs> 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 yeah. I, um, no, I, I, I never thought it was, well, no. I had a strong suspicion that he was going to um, get away with it, to be perfectly honest, simply because you require a pretty decent understanding of poker. To understand how extraordinary his win rate was um and you know just how unlikely it it was and you know i I know the reason that he didn't he wasn't uh found guilty was mainly because of California law about you know intervening in gambling disputes and stuff, but I just kind of think that you needed to be. Quite educated as a poker player, to uh, th- there needed to be a jury of poker players, and then that would have been unfair against him. So I'm not that surprised. Um, but um, you know, maybe it'll come from, from,
0: from the point of view of a, of a poker player. It's it's such a slam dunk. I guess what, oh, yeah, we, what he yeah. did was effectively a, a, a trial by popular opinion. He mm. went into all the details, and he did a great job, sort of unmasking exactly what happened and we all know what happened. But to come back to what you said there about the the judge, the judge said the plaintiff's various claims were not cognizable under California law because California public policy bars judicial intervention in gambling disputes in part because of the asserted damages are inherently speculative as -hmm. laid out in Kelly versus first Astrid Corp. I assume uh, a case from, I think it was 15 or 20 years that was on something similar to do with, um, solving these types of disputes dara to bring you in here i remember us having a conversation quite early on in the chip race i think it was a topical segment and maybe season one where we talked about a sort of gentleman's agreement that poker has always been sort of viewed as this kind of gentleman's uh, shake hands type of thing as has most gambling or almost all gambling even in the eyes of the law do you have any particular perspective on well maybe a why that's a good thing perhaps or and then also like why it mightn't be a good thing
1: to be honest, I don't think it is a good thing. I mean, from what I understand, most of the gambling regulations, at least in our countries, by which I mean UK and Ireland, uh, go back to some act in maybe the 18th century called the Gentleman's Wagering Act, where one gentleman agrees to wager against another gentleman, and they sort it out among themselves, and the courts don't get involved. And if they can't come to an agreement, the court won't actually set itself up as the the arbiter. Now that sometimes comes up when bookies refuse to pay out, for example. The book, calling bookies gentlemen is a bit of a stretch, <laughs> but they are gentleman number one in this case, not agreeing with gentleman number two, the punter who came in, um, which allows them to get away with a lot of stuff. So I think probably gambling in general needs a, needs a serious update um, legislation, but uh, you can't really blame the judges. I mean, they can just go by what the laws that are on the statute books the judge in this case, I think, got some unfair criticism. People were saying it was it was bad judging. But from what I understand, I mean, he he's constrained by Californian law, and he the law in question didn't really allow him to come to any other judgment, uh, which is unfortunate for us. But it does show that legislation is needed. Legislation and regulation are generally not welcomed by poker players, but there are benefits to them too. Most of the EU regulation, for example, and it's become quite fashionable to sort of rail against all those bureaucrats in Brussels. What do they know? But most EU regulation um, around the area of gambling is actually designed from a consumer protection point of view, which should be the perspective. Um, And uh, uh, the problem is like gambling is changing so quickly um, that legislators are always chasing after it. And they're, and generally the, the people who are in, these positions don't necessarily understand the issues. So you, that leads to stuff like the UAGEA in, this, in the States, which um, I think we can all agree is an abortion of a law. But uh, it's, 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 it's always going to be very, very difficult because um, gambling lobbies <coughs> will lobby for regulations that favor them. Um, and... It, with the best will in the world, even if legislators want to come at it from the perspective of protecting players and protecting the consumers who are the players in this case, they'll, they'll struggle to sort of come to terms with what, what legislation is needed.
0: Yeah. I'm going to quote from, um, I think it was uh, poker news did, did a piece on it. It was uh, Chad Holloway actually, who I think I have um, a bit of his reporting here. Judge Shubb, who is the judge in the case, dismissed all of the claims against the venue and the house tournament director as well. They headed up, uh, also the people who headed up the live streaming operation, allegations of fraud, according to Judge Shubb, lack specificity. They do not allege the cost of the rake during each game, let alone what they contributed individually. Instead, they offer nothing more than a general allegation that the rake amounted to tens of thousands of dollars during the time of Mr. Puzzle's scheme. Well, I suppose in, in that front, that means like that, you know, no, The guys who did the live stream, one would assume maybe someone in the mix there was tag-teaming with Postle against everybody else. So they're off the hook. The casino who brought in the live stream team and created the environment where everyone could get fleeced, they're off the hook. Barry, on on this one, it just seems like uh, this is is mucky. Now, I know casinos have a, a magnificent ability to kind of get themselves out of trouble in these spots, but this just seems rubbish, doesn't it? Yeah, I
2: mean, maybe the only sort of silver lining we can take from
0: the whole thing is that the poker
2: community historically has been quite bad at self-policing. And this is an example where, you know, we actually have come together and self-policed and, uh, you know, Possil is now like a persona non grata, the the Stones gambling hall. People are not going to go there um, by any similar sort of amount. You know, live streams are going to be more scrutinized, so yeah, this is I've, I think this is the one, one that gets away, but maybe we can take some sort of resolve from the fact that we actually um, you know people will be will think twice before someone tries something similar in the future
0: yeah it 's absolutely disgusting that he has effectively gotten away with a couple of hundred grand or whatever the the sort of final tally of the money was that is gross. But it was interesting, I watched The Rake with Marley and Jamie a few days ago, Veronica Brill was on their show. Uh, andre Polak on twitter she obviously blew the whistle initially you know phenomenal bravery actually it's got to be said from her you know in an environment that was not going to be necessarily favorable to what she said or supportive of her viewpoint she stuck her neck on the line she put her head above the parapet in a profound way joey obviously you know took the back on offer and and carried out this investigation they both deserve an awful lot of credit for that but it was interesting to see how sort of at peace with it all she was Her, her attitude was well i wanted to ring the alarm bell which i did i wanted to make sure no one would play in a game with possible again which is probably true now and i wanted to just just sort of make sure everybody knew what the truth was that had happened and protect future consumers as well and i suppose she got all of those things through the trial by tv almost that we had with uh with what joey did
2: yeah she nailed it um the only thing she didn't do was get everyone's money back but you know she's a she's a mini celebrity in poker now she's very well liked she's um she's pretty fun to follow on twitter irrespective of the uh, the puzzle stuff so again small silver lining it has made a little star out of her as well so yeah and uh, i was um i was joking the other day um when they announced a the gg world series thing because because gg poker is a relatively new site they, they have to make um, those games' real name tables, because otherwise every s- screen name is going to be, you know, I Puzzle your mom twenty twenty. Because he's kind of become this in yeah, joke in poker now. Like, he, he, look, there's a potentially it's an perfect. even, yeah. potentially even a backlash sort of where, you know, if he rocked up to the the next World Series of Poker, I think some people would want selfies with him. Mm. <laughs> he's he's we, almost. We, I think of,
1: we're, yeah, I think we've already seen that with kasouf I mean, he's still treated, <laughs> he still has celebrity status. Um, and you know he 's people people still play with him he's he 's still pretty much free to d- do all that stuff
0: we had to play with him in london recently
1: yeah I, I mean there are other players who 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 were caught doing even worse stuff um, and uh, we just tend to forget after a while. I mean, I'm not going to say the name, but uh,
0: please don't say the name, Dara. Our, uh, our our legal bills will. Yeah,
1: I said I I was sent a file by our fellow ambassador, or a hand by our fellow ambassador to um to analyze, and it turned out that the villain in the hand was somebody who had been embroiled in a major scandal like five years ago, and. I barely remembered it and Ian didn't remember it and I had to Google it to make sure that it was, uh, that, that, that I wasn't misremembering it. So, you know, we have pretty short memories. Uh, Chris Ferguson got rehabilitated. Howard Lederer even showed up in at, at some selected uh, events. Um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see Postle slip back in, in, in after the uh, requisite period, whatever it is in this case.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Although he is claiming that he's done nothing wrong, which is going to be interesting if he does go for a follow up, whether it's on Joey's Show or whatever he might decide to do. That's a hard case for him to make to the rest of the poker public. But uh, you know, it's not going to be the softball nonsense that Mike Mattisau and his Rubbish Show gave him. It's going to be a real interrogation from Joey. One would expect, or indeed any you know half decent podcaster out there. There's plenty of us would give him a proper grilling in a way that you know you know not the soapy hand job that. Mike was happy to give. Um, yeah, you- it'd have to be
2: Joey because Joey's just trawled through all the material. um I I wouldn't even want to start at this point as an interviewer. You know, it's just so much to go through. But yeah, he, he'll, ne- he'll never do an interview. I don't think. Uh, I I don't think we'll hear from him again.
1: Yeah, it seems like a negative free roll for him at this point. Yeah. um His best his best line is just keep his head down, not attract attention and yeah. then in a few years we've all forgotten about it. Keeping
2: yeah. he he his way. head down is how he got found out, though, not it? <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to switch up the subject now to socially distant live poker, which I suppose we've all seen the pictures. We've seen people behind plastic bubble sheets. We've seen people behind Pyrex glass. We've seen people at the tables just wearing their masks and maybe doing enough that way with their hand sanitizer and chips being moved in and off the tables to be cleaned every few hours. New decks every half an hour, I believe, has become the thing. It's not really enough in the middle of a pandemic in my view. Darren and I have both been pretty clear on record saying we're not playing any live poker, or, uh, certainly not in any country where the disease is still as active as it is in america for example mm. uh, there's no chance of that until there's at least really good treatments and probably in, in truth a vaccine what do you make of the scenes we're seeing of people who are obviously so desperate and so gumming for a fix of a bit of life poker get out of the house and go to the casino that they're willing to take these risks now particularly in america and i suppose you're in the uk a country as badly hit by this virus as anywhere else yeah it's, it's funny we're,
2: we're um... Our casinos are going to open on July the fourth. Um, uh, the way things stand at the moment, which is quite, uh, it's quite comical that you know I, I can play poker with my mum before I can actually go inside her house, um, which, is <laughs> yeah. way, which is the way the, the way it works. Um, yeah, I think I think you nailed it with sort of you know desperate to play. I um, you know even if you f- forget about the the spreading of disease aspect of it now, I mean it's, some of the images we're seeing, I just just look unpleasant to play poker in right now. Like I, I, I saw one this morning, I wrote about it this morning where there was a table, it was a six handed table and three of the guys were wearing masks and three of the guys went for option B which is to have a shit looking square bubble thing over their, over all of them, you know, their entirety. Um, and it just looks ridiculous. It doesn't look comfortable. Well, you know, when I'm playing live poker, I want to relax and have a laugh with people and stuff like that. And, you know, I kind of think, can you not just wait a tiny bit longer to um, to get you fixed? It's not that. Like, I'm, I'm quite keen to get the economy up and running again. I'm quite keen to get people out and get people's mental health improved by visiting people and stuff. But live poker seems like one of the most fertile grounds for spreading a disease. And let's be honest, it's not the most necessary thing in the world right now. Many of us, most of us are lucky enough to have online poker. It, it feels like one of the things that can wait.
0: Mm-hmm. And that, that's, this is the, someone who really, really wants it back and the industry to do well. It's our, we spoke on the chip race with JP McCann, Ireland's foremost tournament director, festival organizer. and he was very negative this is only what two or three weeks ago he was incredibly negative about the prognosis of 2020 live poker let alone july live poker Mm. you know based on what he was saying about the regulations and sort of how there wasn't really the regulations in place in ireland so he had to either follow pub regulations in ireland or look to the uk or holland for their casino regulations and sort of copy them if you like he was just like i can't create a safe environment like i can. Spend a fortune on electronic tables, but like that's not, I don't think, a financially sensible move. He can maybe redesign tables and have double-sized tables where people can maybe sit five or six-handed. That's another option, but that doesn't seem pragmatic either. And of course, the biggest issue for a live operator is the dealer-to-player ratio. Like, If if it costs you a dealer for every four players, that's not a money-making system even. I know maybe some of the casinos operate the old uh, Trojan Horse system with the, the the poker just getting them in and then they spunk it on the on the wheel but like that's not what jp can do he's obviously got a card club there so how, how would you kind of address what barry was saying but like throw it into an irish context there
1: yeah i mean I, I, jp was, was coming out from a very very responsible point of view and i think the biggest issue is just the lack of regulation in a lot of these cases so it's kind of up to everybody and obviously in the states um the casinos understandably want to open as quickly as they can and they will as soon as they're allowed uh, even if that's not uh, the most sensible thing so it's really the government has has to be very clear on these things but then the government is is subject to other pressures uh you know in terms of like finance contributions to their campaigns etc so their sort of incentive is also to play along with those guys as much as they can I mean ultimately the pandemic will pass because um as uh, as all pandemics do and only then will we sort of reach the stage where we can go back to what it was before um it it's it's it seems kind of ridiculous it's to me it's almost like you know you, you, your house is on fire um now you were watching a really good tv program when your house was on fire but you had to leave uh, now the fire brigade have arrived and you know the fire is kind of getting under control but like surely you want to wait until the fire's completely out before you go back in and uh, finish watching your program it's not really as barry said like live poker is not really that big a uh, priority really is it? like it's going to come back it's just a, and it'll come back like it was before once the pandemic passes once we have um a vaccine and or treatment or whatever the method is I don't understand this rush to sort of get back under very suboptimal conditions and play this weird form of poker uh, short-handed with boxes with a perspex box around your head or whatever the case may be. Um surely we can just wait this one out.
2: Did you um did you see the uh, one of the very first sort of videos that came out of Vegas and it included all these dancing girls on the tables but with the like the welders masks on them. like that <laughs> It was, it, was, it was so dystopian. Like, it was so fucking dystopian.
0: Sorry, don't, judge, don't judge, man. That could be your thing. That no, be- no. That, and then, then anyway. So,
2: well, there's
1: like, convention. This,
2: this story ends with me getting a fetish. But no, it was, it was, it was really, really dystopian. And, um, you know, some of them were wearing the masks. And, like, they didn't even bother putting them in nurses' uniforms, which would have worked. You know, it would have <laughs> had the right context. But, no, I mean, it's like, I know there's this kind of running joke that, you know, since Trump got elected, we're kind of in biffs alternate future from back to the future but that that is like some shit we see on, on dystopian films like women in masks dancing on drive-through strip joints yeah yeah <laughs> but um but it gives us something to
0: write about it's, it's pretty funny so <laughs> well something i wanted to tackle with you barry is how poker players and sorry how poker bloggers and reporters all integral members of the poker community, of course, they're all constantly writing about big wins and big winners, even though the truth is they have a consistent income, which means they're probably doing on par, better than the poker community in its entirety. But they nonetheless have to, you know, sit adjacent to big results taking place and, you know, huge money being thrown about. I'm just interested now, do you ever get a bit jealous in that context?
2: No, we all, everyone in the poker media does. I mean, I, I, Uh, Thankfully, at Poker Strategy, we don't really write too much about people who've won tournaments because we found our audience never clicked on it. They they'd look at poker news or something like that instead. And I'm really glad about that because there's something, you know, if you've had a bad weekend and then the first thing you have to do on a Monday morning is write about how a 20-year-old has just won a million pounds (laughs) and then interview them on the Wednesday and the first question is like, so what was it like when you won a million pounds? Um, It is it is pretty annoying and the um i know jealousy is a massive thing with the poker media as is understandable i mean i know i um i know a blogger who um went for a meal with a bunch of sort of high stakes players uh event they were reporting on and they played credit card roulette and he lost and he he was just bright yeah <laughs> but um my own personal experience but like the this came into sort of sharp sort of contract, sharp focus for me once. This is, oh Christ, 2008, something like that. I was live reporting at the, the Party Poker big game, cash game, 36-hour cash game. And uh, Andrew Feldman, do you remember him? The uh, mm-hmm. high-stakes high player um, got in a few controversies uh, now and then. Um, he asked if he could borrow my laptop to check something. This is before smartphones were a big thing. And um, you always had to do that when you, when you were, they always thought you could, they could borrow your laptop. I said, sure, and I didn't think about it. Um, he gave me my laptop back. I went. To the hotel that night got up the next morning remembered i had like a 10 pound bet on sheffield wednesday or something like that on betfair so i logged into my betfair account and i was looking at my betfair account and it said three hundred thousand pounds was in it and uh it what feldman had done is he logged into his own betfair account to check you know something he'd done on it and left it logged in so i was in this hotel room um, and I didn't own a house at this point, And I never, at the time, it never looked like I was going to get on the property ladder. And I was staring at what would be an incredibly good house where I live. Like, <laughs> and, you know, like, inst- you know, instinctively at poker, when you um, you know the right decision right away, like someone free bets you and you instantly know you've got to fold, but you can't just do it automatically. You have to just sit there and like, Acknowledge that something it's a happened.
0: story. Are we about to make some news? No, 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 no. I knew
2: I was going to log out and never touch that money. And you can you can steal it with it when it's fair. You can you can ring a mate up and like you know put You're two thousand to one odds on a Hungarian football match and get your friend. Yeah, it's um, you know, it would have been easy to do, but I knew I wasn't going to do anything about it. But I swear to God, I stared at that screen for. 30 minutes before I logged out, <laughs> <just> staring <laughs> at it,
0: just fucking staring at it. And then I, like, lo- like, and then I only took so seven happy. grand, and I only took seven. and he didn't even notice because it was no, so much. I just stared. Yeah. Eventually, I logged out,
2: took a deep breath, and sent, him, sent Andrew Feldman a message saying, uh, you do know you, lo- you were logged in to your Betfair account with, you know, 300 grand staring at there? And I went, don't worry, I've, log- I've logged out, it's all there. And he just sort of went, oh <laughs> uh, yeah. My- <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, there was so much money around back then. The the, the credit card real story, I'm getting terrible flashbacks to my second Vegas uh, when I when I got involved in a similar situation. My second Vegas went really badly and uh, it got to the stage where like I'm finished playing now and I'm I have all of the money that I have with me in a pile on the bed trying to work out how much I can spend on every meal so that I can ha- get a cab to the airport. So, and I knew Nicky Power, we were, another Irish player, was in a similar situation. So I rang him up and said, okay, let's go somewhere to eat. But like, I've got like $12 I can give to this. So we want somewhere cheap. So he said, yeah, I know there's a cheap burger joint in the win. So I met him in the win and I thought, okay, well, we'll go and eat our cheap loser's burger now. And, uh, and he said, oh, um, Marty rang me. He wants to come along. And I'm like, Marty, Marty, who? So it's Marty Smith, who's just won the 10K PLO. Um, so I'm thinking, OK, well, now the demographic is changing slightly. Marty's <laughs> arriving and he has a he's had a very different Vegas from us. Um, but he arrives and like Marty's very cool. So he's like, wherever you guys want to go, that's fine. But uh, but um, Paul Spillan from my sponsors is coming along. And I'm like, OK, that's this is anyway. Long story short, it ended up being a group of about 12 people. Three of whom had won bracelets um, and were considerably wealthy, and were basically in celebratory mode. So we ended up in the most expensive restaurant in the win, ordering the most expensive wine. The guys were like, the waiter would come and say, "What wine do you want?" And they were like, "Whatever the most expensive one is." <laughs> uh, so I was very careful not to drink any of the really expensive wine um, and to order the cheapest food on the menu, uh, which I believe was a plate of fish. Uh, and then they would, the, initially they were all going like, Oh, we're going to do credit card roulette, credit card roulette. And my lifetime record for credit card is just terrible. I'm like 10 and 10. So I, there was no way I was doing that. So I said, no, no, I'm, I'm just going to pay, um, you know, one twelfth of whatever it was, but it worked out at like 400 bucks or something. So I think I ended up paying 400 bucks for a plate of fish. <laughs> uh, but at least I avoided, uh, having to pay five grand for a plate of fish.
2: You still, still paid 400 bucks for probably the worst meal in the restaurant. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. Well, this was the other thing. I didn't realize we, we were going to do the whole splitting thing either. But um, yeah, you've got to be very careful when you go got with poker players, who you go out with. You, you, All the losers should really group together because then mm-hmm. nobody's going to want that's to go out. I have
0: yeah. a very similar one. I went uh, during the Irish Open in 2011. I went out to dinner with Anton Wig. Ben Willinowski and McLean Carr, all of whom had had one million quid scores in the previous six months, and little old me lost the credit card roulette for a really expensive meal in Shannon's on the Green with like whiskies and wine. And at the time, I was kind of a bit similar to Tara. I was kind of broke. Like I, I had had a good few good years, but then I'd had a bit of a downswing. I lent money away that never came back, and I uh, and and yeah, I I did not need this at all.
2: I mean, I mean, to go to go back to your, um, you know, poker media rubbing shoulders with the, the, the elite players, you do find yourselves in these situations a lot where you'll be like talking with two elite players and they'll be going, oh, yeah, so I got, you know, queen on the river, god damn it. And then, you know, king on the river and it cost me 20 grand. And then you have to chime in. Oh, yeah, I was playing the media tournament and, uh, you know, I, I, I could have won a, a DVD player. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, Timmy told me an amazing story um, and... I'm sure a Cif won't mind me sharing this, but <laughs> Timmy met a in Vegas one year, and Timmy had arranged to meet a bunch of absolute ballers like um what's that? the Australian guy James Obst, uh, who was crushing at the time, um playing all the high rollers, so all the lads were talking about like you know their, the twenty five k high roller beats in the hundred Ks and the thief it was in there chiming, yeah, yeah, you know it's like when you're playing in your 20 quid comp in in, in 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 Grosvenor in Manchester, and Timmy said like they were looking at him going like how is this person in our company who brought this man along? What's he doing here? But uh, Steve was given as good as he got because he had many bad beat stories to to get off his chest as well.
0: But it's like that thing. Do you remember, uh, it was like maybe a year and a half ago, Bryn Kenny won that million quid buy-in. He he chopped it like when he had an 8-to-1 chip lead heads up for 16 million or whatever it was, 18 million. And, you know, very very generous, of course. There was all the rumours that he'd like tipped the dealers really really well and then he bought these like ridiculously expensive bottles of whiskey and that was going around and me and Sharon. It was like oh pour a glass for the dealers pour a glass for the bloggers i remember thinking like like 400 quid glasses of whiskey you know they probably would just have been like can i have the cash alternative brin and you just
2: <laughs> <laughs> i um, i never did the um the live reporting chip count and stuff that much of poker news but i run i, run, I do run i did run really well with it because I think I did five events and I think three of those events, Tony G made the final table and he owned Poker News at the time. So Tony G um, is mostly a very quiet, shy kind of guy, but when he, when he's excited, he is the Tony G that you see on TV. And uh, he always used to give a tip to everyone at Poker News uh, when he'd make a final table in those things. So I, I did run quite well in those. I and mean, he actually gave us cash instead of, uh,
0: you know, whiskey. Oh wow, well. nice. yeah. Like, make it rain Tony G I like that much better (laughs) Um, finally Barry you and Dara have a book coming out it's going to be out maybe in the next few days maybe in the next week or two I don't know and I don't know if you know quite yet Um, but sell it to me sell it to me what are you you selling this time around Uh, well we um, we
2: ruined satellites for the regulars uh, Um, now we're going to ruin progressive knockout tournaments for for everybody else we we It kind of, after writing the satellite book with Dara, um, he started studying them more and I studying PKO's more. And I started to realize by default, I was getting better at progressive knockout tournaments. And we kind of realized that, you know, PKO's are the yin to uh, the yang of of satellites. So we we worked on this this book together. Um, It's called PKO Poker Strategy. And um, I think it covers most of the biggest adjustments a regular tournament player should make in progressive knockout tournaments and uh, should be out by the end of uh, June and the, the place to find out about it first would be Dara's mailing list because they'll, be, they'll have access to it a few days before it got, uh, the, you know, the, the wider
0: audience will. Excellent stuff. That's a good tip there. Joined our mailing list if you want to check it out. Dara, on this one, I want, I want to come to you just on the strategy stuff. I suppose, you know, for a long time, you were the strategy guru. You had won the UKIPT strategy leaderboard two or three times in a row and not just won it, but like blitzed everyone else I know because I was like second and third and I think I had half your score. So it wasn't even close. And, you know, I suppose the thing that is, is consistent in this and Barry alluded to it there is how there's a kind of a dialing up and a dialing down on the ICM. So mm. what you understand is that if you come to this book, just like if you came to poker satellite strategy with a pretty good knowledge of poker, or I suppose whatever level you're at, you could be a recreational intermediate or, or an expert. What you're essentially doing is saying, okay, we'll take all the existing knowledge you have. And now I'm going to kind of put it through the lens of this, um, specific game style where we are actually going to turn the variant style like up to 11, as they say.
1: Yeah, I think one of the challenges that we had with this book is uh, I was very firmly established in people's minds as a, as a satellite player. So people had no problem um, accepting that I could write a satellite book. With, with BQOs, it's 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 different, but it's also the same in a sense that like what I've done consistently over my career is First of all, and this is true for you, David, too. you know you have to move on from different game types. Game types come rise in popularity. they also die. Uh, when I met you first, you were grinding six man hypers and forty five mans on full tilt. Uh, so every time there was a paradigm shift, my sort of the way I go about learning the new thing is not uh, the way most people learn now, which is you know to consume all the content. It's literally to work it out from first principles from maths. So, you know, the first major work I did when I was sitting goal player was on push fold and use spreadsheets to work out the ranges. Then as we moved on to satellites, I studied ICM and uh, again, had to sort of do all those calculations by hand. This is pre-holding resources calculator. Um, so with pko's i also did the same like i actually went and looked at the fundamental maths now the reason one of the reasons why we're doing the book on pko's is there's so little content out there on pko's existing anyway, and certainly in, as far as books go so it, it 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 was something to tackle but um as Barry said it was something that i was learning at myself at the time both both playing lots of pko's but also sort of coming up with mathematical concepts strategic concepts uh working them out from first principles and then actually applying them um, and then working out how to explain them to Barry, um, so to get it across to the audience of our book. Um, but the approach is very much sort of this is the most important stuff about PKOs because PKOs are such a huge area. Um, and but this is the stu- this is the uh, the stuff that will make by far the biggest difference to your game. Um, and allow if you know if you come if you read through the book, it, I think if you even read one chapter in the book, there's. 30 minutes approach to PKO you'll get a lot better at PKO's um if you read the entire book you'll you'll also get a lot better but PKO's unlike satellites they do require a lot of additional study um and that's sort our book is sort of like a starting point for for
0: that and Barry coming back to you on on this like uh, working with Dara on this kind of material obviously Dara's sort of framed it as you're almost like the the reader at some level or 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 if he can get the the first principles mathematical sort of maybe dense content into a digestible form to you and then you can sort of put that back on the page it implies that there's no limit really to the the the, the audience for this i suppose the thing i loved about poker satellite strategy was even though the material in there was very complicated at times and very dense and admittedly i, I was more to grips with that kind of stuff being a satellite player myself but the one thing that i found was it was always very easy to consume as a book and i think that's just so important communication is sort of in the end of the day what makes the book a success, or not? I think you know, people will recommend a book to their friends if they think that their friend, whatever level you know of poker they are, will be able to get something from it, and I think that's the trick that you guys have somehow mastered now with these two books is that you, you you've created a, a way of explaining poker concepts and strategy that anyone can consume yeah
2: I, I certainly like to think so. certainly one of the nicest things about the satellite book was you know on the one end we were getting recreational players managing to satellite into uh you know big events in a couple of instances you know so actually having really big scores in the target events that they want seats to and at the other end of the spectrum we had like marty mathis who's you know potentially the number one satellite grander in the world right now and we had colin moshman who Dora and i both really look up to and uh, reference in the previous book also saying um that the material worked and i i think if we've hit upon one thing um you know i don't think anybody wants to buy a poker book and spend the first 50 pages learning you know that a flush you know beats two pair and stuff like that i think we already know that at this stage so we we've, we've kind of hit a formula of we kind of teach you the most important things first and you know and do it in that order so even like even if you're only halfway through the book you can go and play one of the things you're learning about and see the thing ha- work in practice before you get to the end of the book. And I think that's probably um, a winning formula for, for anything else that we do. It's kind of like, you know, focus on the, the biggest bang for your book sort of stuff.
0: Excellent stuff. Well, I cannot wait for that to come out. I have read an early draft of it. I'm going to reread the finished product because I'm sure there will be even more in there. And I think it's fair to say that uh, with the magic of post-production, we're going to superimpose an image of the book cover <laughs> to the end of this, which will be appearing in, in just a couple of moments. Um, that book will be available, as Barry and Dara said, at the end of this month, hopefully. Uh, if not, it won't be too long after that. And I want to say, finally, thank you so much, Barry, for coming on. And the best of luck to both of you. I hope it's another bestseller. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you.